Thank you, Lori, and thank you, Elephant. We are in the midst of a sermon series in this uh, time after Easter and leading up to Pentecost, wondering about the good and unexpected journey and embracing the new course. And so we have been looking at various uh, characters in the Bible who find themselves often quite suddenly on a new course and wondering about what their stories can teach us as we unwind our own story through this very strange, uncertain, and rather sudden time. So today we uh, find ourselves uh, in the gospel according, uh, not the gospel, but the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 9, beginning at the first verse, this great story of the conversion of Saul. Hear the word of God. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he was going along the way and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He said, Who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they had heard the voice, but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At that moment he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I, I, have heard many about, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him much that he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. And then he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we pray that by your grace and mercy that you allow these words to come to speak and point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ. For we pray this in his name. Amen.
Years ago, during one of the many hurricanes that was approaching out of the Atlantic Ocean toward the East Coast, I read an interview between a journalist and a geologist about the effects of hurricanes upon the shoreline and what potential destruction they bring to the way of life at the shore, the natural habitats and the beaches and the shore towns, etc. The journalists seemed rather eager to get this geologist to paint for us a, a picture of devastation and damage and loss that might be left in the wake of this approaching hurricane. But the geologist didn't seem to want to take the bait. Instead, he mentioned that he was actually quite eager for this hurricane to arrive and to pass by and, and hoped that he might be able to get out under the beach within the next 24 hours. Well, then what do you expect to find, the interviewer asked, seemingly wanting to hear a picture of devastation and damage and loss. But the geologist responded with an interesting answer. What do I expect to find when I get out there, he asked. I expect to find a new beach. I expect to find a new beach. It seems that one of the great curiosities of this pandemic is the wonderment around what kind of life will we be returning to? How will this pandemic alter our way of being, our, our patterns of living, our behaviors at home, at work, and at play? What will be for us the new normal? When the winds and rains of this virus sweep past us, what are we going to find? What will be the new beach, the new normal? Doctors, sociologists, epidemiologists, corporate leaders, government officials all have their best guesses over what the new normal will be, and their focus is mostly on societal patterns and macro-human behavior and business practices and travel and online traffic. But, but what about the new normal for you? What about the new normal for me? With our way of life being interrupted, disrupted, and given the chance that we now have to wonder what this new life will be for me when things begin to settle down, what new normal do we want to claim in these days, these weeks, these months to come? In his brilliant little masterpiece entitled, Let Your Life Speak, Parker Palmer writes about the lifelong quest that each of us pursues to understand what is the purpose for our lives, what is our calling, who is the real me, and how do I express the real me in the world. And he talks about the fact that as you and I go along in our lives, that the circumstances of our lives, the events of our lives, the pressuring forces of our lives can often conform us into taking on roles in life that are not really who we are. A budding young artist puts aside her paints to take a job that will gain her a sustainable income. A, a businessman remembers back to his dream long ago of being a high school math teacher. A highly effective doctor is promoted up the ranks into hospital administration, never again to experience her first love, the joy of seeing patients. 
Sometimes we take on roles and jobs and tasks that are really not a reflection of who we are. And, and there develops then this, this rub, this dissonance between who we really are on the inside and what we project on the outside. And, and it can stretch further than job or career. Sometimes it can even be about our very identity, this fundamental understanding of who we are on the inside that the world may not value on the outside. And one of the examples of this that Parker Palmer points to is the civil rights icon Rosa Parks. Many of us remember that name, Rosa Parks, the young African-American seamstress back in 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, who boarded a bus one day and sat down in the all-white section in front of the bus. Later, when asked why she had decided to sit down there, Rosa Parks answered, I sat down because I was tired. And of course, what she meant by that is not that her feet were tired, but that her soul was tired. She was tired of acting like a person that she was not. She was tired of conforming to the outside pressures of being a person different than the one God created her to be. And the moment came when she was asked to take her seat in the back of the bus that Rosa Parks decided to let her life speak and to act on the outside what she felt on the inside. So she stayed seated in the seat she had chosen because she was a human being, a child of God, just like anybody else. It is an instant of great history when a person seizes the moment to begin living on the outside what they feel on the inside. You know, there's so much to wonder about when Luke tells us the story of the conversion of the man once named Saul of Tarsus. Luke doesn't go into a whole lot of detail about Saul except to say that he is this religious zealot who has sniffed out the emerging Jewish sect that is putting forward some rather unorthodox teaching about the seemingly deceased Rabbi Jesus. Saul thinks that these early Christians are dangerous and he, he employs every method possible to snuff them out. But then comes this fateful campaign to Damascus where he plans to root out another cell of this terrorist organization of Jesus followers. And he's on the road to Damascus and there Saul has his moment. And in his moment, he gets knocked to the ground and he hears the voice of the risen Jesus. And in this encounter with the risen Jesus, something happens to the insides of Saul. Something on the insides of Saul start to be in conflict with what everybody sees as the outsides of Saul. There is this voice inside of him that is now beginning to speak contrary to the life on the outside. And on the outside, he is an enemy of Jesus, but on the inside, he is now becoming a new friend of Jesus. And the question is, what is he going to do about it? How does he allow his life to speak? And what follows is this great pregnant pause as to whether Paul will seize the moment to begin living on the outside what is now beginning to happen on the inside. 
Now, the difficulty that comes with a story like Saul's is that it might lead us to believe that this moment of dissonance between the inside and the outside requires some kind of blinding light and supernatural voice. That, that's often how we hear these conversion stories, that, that in order for me to come to terms with the possible conflict between the inside and the outside, well, God just got to knock me off my horse or alongside the head. I need some blinding light and some voice from the heavens. And yet I wonder if that is rarely how that moment comes. I wonder if the moment, this, this moment when we wrestle between the inside and the outside, I wonder if those moments aren't happening all the time. It's just that we find all sorts of reasons not to deal with it. You know how life goes, it comes at you fast, the list is a mile long when we wake up each morning of all the things that we have to do, work errands, trim the bushes, wash the car, binge watch the next series on TV, prepare for the meeting or that meeting, keep up with the Joneses, not to mention COVID-19. Who, who has the time to deal with this dissonance? Who has the energy to deal with this voice of conscience or this dreaming of who you really might be? Easier just to stuff it and to live into somebody else's narrative for our lives. It just isn't easy to turn your insides into your outsides. You might let some people down, you think. You, you might make some mistakes. You might appear to be selfish. Or, or maybe you've gotten so used to the old normal that you're afraid of the new normal. Like Augustine in his early, rather debauched life, began to feel these pangs of conscience, and he admits to, back then, his prayer to God, O oh Lord, make me a good man, but not just yet. Maybe we suffer from the not just yets. C.S. Lewis, in his great spiritual autobiography called Surprised by Joy, tells of his journey from belief to non-belief, and then to belief again, and how there came this season, finally, when the hound of heaven appeared to be advancing upon him. It, it seemed that with every conversation and every book he read, there were little inklings of the Almighty speaking inside of him, and he wasn't sure what to do. He had so much to lose in what he projected on the outside, this cynical skepticism. Little by little, the defenses broke down, and Lewis writes, you must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling the steady, unrelenting approach of him who earnestly desired, who I earnestly desired not to meet. And that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me, and in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. There is so much to keep us from allowing the inside to become the outside, not just Yet, we say. What is the old poem? Procrastination is a vice. It only leads to sorrow. But I can stop it any time. I think I will tomorrow. So here's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if right now we are living in a very ripe moment. 
I'm wondering if right now, while the world has been turned upside down, if right now, while most of us have been forced to hit the pause button, if right now, when our plans for the future have been put on hold, I wonder if right now isn't the time to look on the inside and to hear whatever the voice is saying that might tell us a little bit more of who we really are. Interesting, isn't it, that in a time as crazy as this, that perhaps our strongest desire is to get back to the old normal. We, we want to go back to the way things used to be, like those Israelites that left captivity and the slavery of Egypt and started into the wilderness. It didn't take them long, oh no, it didn't take them long to want to go back, to go back to the old normal. As bad as that old normal had been, they wanted things that they were used to, but what would it mean for us to imagine a new normal, the new beach? What would it mean for us to imagine that this voice that is whispering and maybe has been whispering or even shouting inside for a long time could be turned into who we are on the outside? Rosa Parks said that she sat down because she was tired well, what have you grown tired of? What have you grown restless over? What's the rub you've been feeling between your inside and your outside? And why isn't now the moment? If not now, when, to quote the Jewish mystic Hillel? Remember that great scene in Shakespeare's Julius Caesar when Brutus tries to enlist the support of Cassius in his plot to overthrow the government and he refers to the gravitational pull of the tides, the swell of the seas, and he says, there is a tide in the affairs of men which taken at the flood leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyages of their life is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures. Does the current serve us now? I can't imagine a time more ripe for rebirth. Anne Lamott tells the story of a time when she was inviting, when she was visiting her friend Pammy, who was undergoing treatment for cancer, and as they were standing and talking, Anne, pointing to her dress, asked her ailing friend what she thought of her dress and whether or not it made her look fat. Strange question to ask a cancer patient. And her ailing friend's response was this. Annie, she said, you don't have the kind of time to ask that kind of question. As if to say, Annie, you don't have time to waste on what other people think of your appearance. Annie, you don't have time to waste worried about what people think about your outside. Anne Lamott writes, it was like somebody conked me over the head. She continues, 
You don't have time to get the world to approve of you. You have only the time to become the person you dream of being. You have only the time to accept yourself as you are and start getting a little bit healthier so you can be who God needs you to be. In a way, it's exhilarating, she continues. In a way, it's exhilarating to say, this is really who I am, and I'm not going to pretend just because I of a sneaking suspicion that you think I'm not good enough. God meets you where you are. God meets you where you are. On the road to Damascus, on a bus in Montgomery, in the middle of a pandemic, God meets you where you are. And maybe Now's the time. Why wouldn't now be the time when you let the inside speak to the outside? Why wouldn't now be the time when you embraced who you really are? Why wouldn't now be the time when you let your life, your real life, speak? Why wouldn't now be the time to say to yourself that I don't have time to live somebody else's life? You don't have time to be anything but who you are. Oh, of course we want to go back. Of course we want to go back to the old normal. How badly we want to go back to those earlier familiar servitudes. How badly we want to go back to Egypt. But maybe now the tide is up. And on such a full sea are we now afloat. And we must take the current when it serves or lose our ventures.